Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We'll only be talking about one chapter today, but it is the longest chapter in the whole novel. And it is when everything changes. We arrive at the Darcy estate, Pemberley, and it's awesome. The grounds are gorgeous, and as the housekeeper gives the gardeners and Lizzie a tour of the house, we see that it is so tastefully furnished and beautiful. Austin spends time telling us that the grounds complement the house, and the house complements the grounds, and the housekeeper just can't stop complimenting Darcy. It is a love fest, and it is all to do with Pemberley. There's something natural and almost moral about the place. Here is Jenny Davidson on Pemberley as an estate. The beauties of an estate like Pemberley are not the same as the beauties of a penthouse in Soho and a Lamborghini, which is to say the beauties of Pemberley are the beauties of a well-governed estate. And a well-governed estate is an estate that has good husbandry, whose owner and proprietor cares for the tenants and the plantings of trees and the buildings in a way that speaks to the best of an older-fashioned idea of an aristocratic society so that it's not acquisition in the capitalist sense that anybody could buy for themselves and brandish as a status symbol. Pemberley and the way that it prospers, and maybe thinking about the way that grounds or a garden can prosper is especially vivid here, right? That there's this real care and husbandry that speaks to a certain set of values of stability, of community, and of care of which the estate is a symbol. Pemberley is so amazing that Lizzie almost regrets saying no to Darcy. The housekeeper goes on and on about what a great guy he is, the best boss in the world, generous to the poor, thoughtful, But then Lizzie remembers that Darcy probably wouldn't even have let her aunt and uncle visit Pemberley, and she feels better again. No matter how generous of a master Darcy is, no matter how great of a brother, no matter how grand the house, she made the right decision. He was a snob who looked down on her family, and so she wouldn't have been happy with him. But Lizzie is torn as she is taken deeper and deeper into the estate. She's glad that Darcy isn't home, but is thinking about how handsome he is as she stares at his portrait. Every time I read this section, I imagine Lizzie is seeing a career for herself on this estate and in this world. I shared that thought with Roxanne Eberly, who had this to say. I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to read it. I taught women in the 18th century and a lot of my students ended up talking about just how much work it really was to run an estate and how much power women did have. And it was interesting because these students really framed it as being a manager. And I think it's the first semester actually where that's happened, where there finally seems to be a recognition that work takes many forms. 
I like that reading. You know, I'm teaching my Jane Austen course this semester in terms of 21st century ideas about race and power. And so I really think that one of the attractions of Pemberley is that power that she sees Darcy really using in a benevolent fashion. But that's also part of a fantasy about power, that you can use it benevolently and thus bring together disparate classes in the same way that the gardeners become invited in. There's still a principle of separation, right? You have to be the right kind of person to get the invite to Pemberley. Lizzie is yearning for the power that she might have at Pemberley. But I think Roxanne Eberly is right to point us to the conditions of power and how they are being revealed in the scene. Needless to say that this visit to Pemberley is fraught, and it only becomes more fraught as the chapter goes on, because all of a sudden, Darcy is there, standing right in front of Lizzie. He wasn't supposed to arrive until tomorrow, and they both blush, but then they find a way to talk. And Darcy is nice to her. He asks her about her family and everything. And then he asks to be introduced to those two fashionable people Lizzie is traveling with. She's proud to say that these two folks are her aunt and uncle. Darcy, Lizzie, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner go on a walk together. Darcy offers that Mr. Gardner fish at the Pemberley River. Lizzie gets a chance to say that she didn't know he would be there, and he says that he understands. He's being so generous to her that Lizzie doesn't quite know what to do with herself. Especially when Darcy asks her to meet his sister. That's it, Lizzie concludes. He's changed so much. Could he still love her? I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, we're actually at Pemberley. We are actually live from Pemberley. We are live from Pemberley. I mean, we're, we're not really live, but we're at Pemberley. We made it to Pemberley. We are alive. <laughs> Lauren, what do you feel like we need to know in order to spend time at Pemberley? Can I just say, every time you ask me that question, I get to just prop open a door to something that I think, huh, is this going to be interesting? And then I could just swim in it forever. I am not someone who is the most likely person to go on a Regency house tour. (laughs) But let me tell you, once you start looking into them, they are fascinating. So, okay, let's just get some background on what it means to show up and just be expected to tour someone's private estate. Like, you know, the gardeners just assume that this is going to happen and they're right, but there's really interesting history to it. So back before the English Civil War in the 1600s, Land-owning families were so linked to the notion of English welfare. The aristocracy was so inseparable from what it meant to have a functioning country for everyone that it was expected that any person of any class could show up and expect to be treated with respect, receive refreshment, any assistance that they need. Like literally even the wandering poor were just considered invited in to an aristocrat's house. This was part of the welfare state of England. But after the Civil War and after Restoration, everything changes. Spaces are then limited to elite guests. There's a turn to privacy and individual interests. Public duty is no longer what these estates are for. But then something else changes again, which is the advent of tourism. And around Jane Austen's time, it became this very fashionable thing to go tour the houses in the countryside, many of which, like Pemberley, were built in this moment after the Civil War. And so they had to be reconfigured from these very private spaces into spaces that had public areas where you could come and admire the art and see the rooms that were designated for gawking, while the elite family's private life was sort of sequestered essentially behind a screen. And so 
what would happen was if you were someone who looked to be of a certain class, like the gardeners, you could simply appear at a house. And usually if the owner was not home, and frankly, you looked like you had enough wealth that you could tip the housekeeper and tip the gardener, you would be shown around. And there were plenty of people like Mrs. Reynolds, the servant, who had a really clear knowledge of all of the furnishings. But increasingly, that was too much information for a housekeeper to know. And so guidebooks were published. This was so common that people actually published their own books that listed the furnishings, that showed the architectural plans. And this became a whole advent of the field of guidebooks and of travel literature. So it's a really kind of interesting moment in terms of class about what it means to own this place, how much you would open it to the public, what members of the public would be allowed inside. And into this next wave of class consciousness and how these country houses related to what it meant to be an aristocrat and what your duties were to England. This is where Lizzie and the gardeners arrive. I always think about that in terms of when I'm traveling, I am a white lady and I feel like I can walk into any hotel and use the bathroom. And a story that Peter tells when he first moved to the United States is that, you know, there was a sign, no loitering. And he asked someone, what's loitering? And his friend answered, don't worry, if you have a credit card, you're never loitering. That like somehow, if you just have enough wealth, if you're just the right class, you're just allowed in certain spaces. You can nap in a park and it's cute. And as soon as you don't have a credit card, it's something else and it's criminal. And it's just so interesting that this house is the site of all of that. There was actually a really interesting piece of writing from Austin's era where, you know, a slightly rough looking man on horseback went from house to house to see who would let him Ooh, inside. Yeah. And then he wrote and published excoriations about the houses that would not admit him, which end up to be pretty pernicious. Like often it's like, oh, sorry, she's home, so you can't come in. Right. <laughs> I can't come in. And yet it's really interesting that this was such a piquant topic at the time that someone actually essentially wrote a travelogue of being shut out of these houses. So, Lauren, should we talk about Mrs. Reynolds, this tour guide? <laughs> yes, we should talk about Mrs. Reynolds. I am so confused by Mrs. Reynolds. She seems so ridiculous, so hyperbolic, and yet I can't tell what point Austin is trying to make with her. I cannot understand what role she's playing in whatever satire this is, you know, whether the idea is to just make the reader feel like there's something not quite credible about this account of Darcy is just being like the most incredible guy ever. <laughs> what do you think the deal is? OK, so I do have a theory. So Mrs. Reynolds is giving the gardeners and Lizzie a tour and she's like, yes, here's a portrait of Mr. Darcy. Isn't he so handsome? He's not just handsome. He's generous. He's not just generous to the poor. He's also the best master to servants ever and the best older brother. He was a good kid and he grew up to be a great adult, right? Like she is his one man band PR team. But what's so interesting to me is that Mr. Gardner is like, she's ridiculous. <laughs> oh my God. She's so over the top. And Lizzie is like, interesting. <laughs> There's a remark that Lizzie is listening to Mrs. Reynolds and is like, oh my God, he has the ability to give so much happiness and so much misery. He has so much power. I think that part of what Austin is saying is like, Lizzie is already falling a little bit in love and she doesn't find Mrs. Reynolds ridiculous at all. Whereas M Mr. and Mrs. Gardner find Mrs. Reynolds completely ridiculous. And that this is in the eye of the beholder. And because Lizzie's a little bit smitten, she's like, oh, my God. Yes, I agree. He is the best. It's funny listening to you sort of deliver your version of Mrs. Reynolds line. I'm hearing it as like, he's a doctor. He's Jewish. He's single. <laughs> Why do you ask? He makes a good living. Exactly. Like every woman with fine eyes who crosses this threshold is Mrs. Reynolds like, maybe she'll do for the master. I mean, he's yeah. not getting any younger. <laughs> I love Mrs. Reynolds as Yenta. I'm really feeling it. It totally makes me read her whole character differently. 
<laughs> and so, like, yes, the people who cavell about the people they love are ridiculous. And yet, right, like, it's why my mom loves you. She loves listening to you compliment me every week. She's like, yes, <laughs> Lauren is very smart. OK, but here's the thing. Mrs. Reynolds is not Darcy's mom. Mrs. Reynolds is Darcy's servant. And so I think that there's some element where maybe this is coming from love. She's certainly trying to convince us of that. But there's also this element of power here, right? I mean, she's worked for this family forever. And clearly, she is not in dire straits working for this family. Maybe this is part of the dynamic that she needs to participate in to maintain a comfortable employment as a chief housekeeper at an aristocrat's estate? I don't know. I think that you live with someone long enough and she's known him since he was a boy. Like, I know it's not the same at all, but one of my best friends in the world was my boss. And even as my boss, I trusted her and a, a personal dynamic did supersede that. And I think it must especially be true if you've watched someone grow up, right? Yes, but you weren't your boss's servant. No, I was not. I worked for the company. She could not have fired me without other people. And it's, I mean, it's calling to mind a little bit, you know, Bessie and Jane's relationship in Jane Eyre. And yet yeah. the whole point is that there's some class equality between the two of them, Bessie and Jane. You know, they are right. both impoverished. They are both desperate to hold on to whatever modicum of independence they can eke out as women in a stratified society. And so... I don't know. There may be some element where it's like, oh, she's known him since he was a baby and he was a lovely baby and she just loves the hell out of him. Or as I think Mr. Gardner would say, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And I also just can imagine myself in this point of view that like you've watched someone lose his parents. You've watched him try to do his best. He has a lot of power, but he's always nice to you. You kind of feel proud of him and entitled to him. And, you know, it is a stratified relationship in which pretending that there isn't a huge power differential would be a lie. And yet I do think at some point personal relationships can supersede that. I mean, we see that with his father and the late Mr. Wickham, right? Like these personal relationships can not necessarily completely obliterate the power difference because it's up to Mr. Darcy who gets the money and how much. But I do think it can do some work toward that. And I think that, you know, this is the chapter in which Austin makes her strongest case for the perpetuation of the aristocracy in a way that makes me really uncomfortable that, yes. that what she's showing us is that when this power is consolidated in this way, when this capital is consolidated in this way and used ethically, it is a source of benevolence and welfare, which gets back to what these estate tours hearkened back to in some way, that this was about making sure that Pemberley was there to make England great, to make all of England great and all people of England great. And to me, that's an inherently corrupt idea. You know, the first half of the book in so many ways is straining against this social and economic, like permanent stratification. And then Lizzie shows up and sees the version of it that she wants to be the mistress of. And then there's this pivot. And I find that pivot deeply uncomfortable. Totally. And I think that that's a really important point. I just like think it should be illegal for Jeff Bezos to acquire the amount of wealth that he has. And I think it should probably be illegal for Darcy to have, you know, the amount of wealth he has. And essentially what Lizzie is saying is, oh, it's really horrible unless it's with someone who uses it correctly. And yeah, I agree with you. That is a really uncomfortable thing. But that I can still imagine, I'm not defending the position because I think you're absolutely right. I do think that there's something so comforting about watching someone with a lot of power be good at having the power, right? They shouldn't have that much power. And yet, I don't know if it's because I was raised in patriarchy that every once in a while when someone competent is in charge, I'm just like, thank you for managing it. 
But I can see myself falling into this Lizzie trap of being like, I hate this for everyone except when it's you. Well, this is hearkening back to the conversation that we had back at Rosings about Lady de Berg and her relationship to philanthropy. I think that in terms of Jeff Bezos, it's like the Bezos versus Bill Gates paradigm of like, oh, you can both have all the money in the world. But if Bill Gates sends some of it to Africa, then we think he's heroic and a model of capitalism done right. Right. And I just I don't think we're past it and I don't think we're immune to it or I don't think I'm immune to it. But I love that Austin gives us the gardeners who are like, yeah, he is really nice. He did offer that I fish in his river, but people say shit and I'm not going to believe him that he actually wants me to fish in his river. Like today he's nice to me, but tomorrow he might shoot me for being on his property is essentially what Mr. Gardner is saying. There are people in this house who are doubting Darcy and who are coming in truly skeptical. And it's not just any characters. It's the two characters who I would argue, and I think you would agree, we are set up to respect the most highly in the novel. They are fashionable and respectable and kind and smart and shrewd. And they are walking into this house super excited to see it. And also, this is full of shit. It's so interesting as well to me that this is, you know, On Mrs. Bennett's side of the family, right? On Mr. Bennett's side of the family, we get the dolt who is Collins. And on Mm -hmm. Mrs. Bennett's side of the family, you know, this like total paragon of disrespect in this book, it is her brother who was this sort of shrewd, urbane model who even Darcy approaches and thinks, oh, who are these people who seem of my ilk in some way? It's such an interesting choice that that that's how this got split in terms of thinking about the diversity of personalities and tendencies within families. I mean, there's Lydia and Jane in the same family, right? And I think that I don't know if Austin thought that any of her siblings were ridiculous. I'm not as entrenched in the letters as I should be. But I know that she was keenly aware of the fact that you could have totally different financial fates in one family, right? That one brother can get sort of sold off to a rich family and can become landed gentry and like the equivalent of a multi-multi-millionaire, while the other can be a spinster sister who can barely make ends meet and is essentially housing insecure in the 19th century. And so... Like, I think this is deeply felt the way that there can be these like really disparate experiences within a single family. And also disparate ways in which class is performed in yes, a single even family. In one family. Yep. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. So, Lauren, I mentioned this briefly, and I do not know enough about this to speak very intelligently, but something else that I noticed is how one of the very first things that the chapter tells us is that the landscape at Pemberley is very varied, that there are woods and rivers and, you know, it goes on and on. And you also get the sense that it's very natural. It's not overly quaffed, right? It's not overly designed to within an inch of its life. And part of this 
if my sophomore year of college Jane Austen class serves me is that Austen visited Chatsworth when she went to Bakewell and found it just despicable. She thought it was like overly done and like wealth just thrown at the wall. And, uh, you know, to some extent, Rosings is inspired by that. And then also there was this really anti-French sentiment at the time. And the French did these gardens that were landscaped to, you know, within an inch of their lives, right? You get hedges shaped like animals. And so there is this almost patriotic description of Pemberley as not disturbing the beauty of England and actually living in harmony with the beauty of England, that the house emerges out of this like beautiful, rich landscape. And there's just this patriotism that we see a lot in American literature as well, right? Like Cooper and Hawthorne are writing about the American countryside in similar ways. But this is just, Pemberley is beautiful in part because it it's just so British. It's the green and pleasant land. Yes, exactly. But I think that there's something else too, which is about what it means to take Lizzie and Darcy and their relationship and the notion of the estate outside of the drawing room, that so much of their difficulties between each other has been because they've been confined in these spaces with this furniture and these customs and these expectations within this very circumscribed world. And her time with Darcy when it matters is when they're on a walk, they're outside, when he gives her the letter, like this is where she reflects, where she embodies herself is on her walk. Even if it's dirtying her hems on her way to Netherfield, this is where Lizzie is the most Lizzie. And it turns out, I think we find here that it's also where Darcy is the most Darcy, where he's unencumbered and natural and warm in a different way when he's out. She doesn't even go inside with him. And the landscaping of this whole estate is about not being in this totally manicured, gilded, contained world, which is where I think he's the least comfortable and where she's the least comfortable. It's also, you know, his guests are arriving tomorrow. Caroline isn't teasing him about being attracted to someone's fine eyes. And Mrs. Hurst isn't there. And who you're with brings out the best or worst of you. You know, Darcy has had a little bit more time further away from the Georgiana affair. Wickham is, you know, miles and miles away. They are able to meet on this different ground and you know, it suits them so well. So something else that I encountered looking into the house tour and part of its importance was as houses were expected to be open to everyone in the 1600s, it was a time of great urbanization. And there was a lot of anxiety about wealthy Englanders taking up residence in London and somehow abdicating their responsibility to the country of England, to their country estates, which is really where they belonged, not with the riffraff of the city. And now we are in another time of industrialization and of urbanization where that anxiety is resurfacing once again. And so I think that who Darcy is in London and what Jane experiences in terms of the Bingleys and the the mistreatment by the Bingleys and Darcy's behavior towards Jane, even in his absence in London, all of that is part of the anxiety about the city. And now he's home. He's in the countryside. He's where he belongs as the steward of the land. And I think that Austin is introducing us to a different feeling about aristocracy in that moment. Can we talk about my favorite moment of this chapter, which is the the sentence that we uh, looked at, and it's what I talked about with Roxanne Eberly. And it's this quote about the gardeners and Lizzie. And it is... They were all of them warm in their admiration. And at that moment, she felt that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. And we've talked about this before, that Lizzie doesn't have a vision of her life, that she's like, I don't know. I just don't want to leave Jane. I don't want to marry Mr. Collins. And I don't really know what I want, but like none of this. And she looks at Pemberley and it is the first time that she's like this, this could be something. 
I got to watch movies as a kid, right? And I got to like read about women writers and about people working in media and religion. And there was just so much culture that I got to witness and imagine different versions of my life. And Lizzie lives in this tiny town and she's traveled at most 50 miles away from home at any given point. And all she has seen are like kind of unhappy marriages other than the gardeners. And she's like, I guess I could have that kind of marriage. And I love that she's looking at this and there's this ambition in her that's like alighted by the sight of it. And it's not, you know, I know that a lot of people joke that she falls in love with Darcy as soon as she sees Pemberley in a way that makes her sound like a gold digger, that like, oh, I don't know, you're this kind of rich. But I think that it's more than that. I think like he has the ability to make people's lives good. And and she sees that Charlotte loves managing her house. And Lizzie is like, I want to manage this house. And I just love that ambition and this moment of realization for her. Isn't it interesting, too, that it's not her mother's dream? Like all her mother wants is for her to marry, marry well, marry someone rich, marry someone handsome. And here she is sort of entertaining the fantasy of this, but it's as she conceives it. It, it has yes. nothing to do with what people like to gossip about or daydream about from the comfort of their own sitting room. This is something that is really her ambition. And I think there, that separation is interesting. So Lauren, we've talked a lot about Pemberley and the attractions of Pemberley, but also we like actually see Darcy. Horror of horrors, Darcy <laughs> arrives. You know, Lizzie was told he wouldn't be there and she's like, oh shit, he's here. Can you imagine? Can you no, imagine? I, I would want to die. Like die. she does, right? Like they both <laughs> blush and they're like, ah. and you get the feeling that he almost feels bad on intruding upon her. He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You're right. I wasn't supposed to come till tomorrow. Oh my God. It's just horrifying. And the thing that I really wanted to talk about is love as a willingness to change for someone because she can't get over how changed he is. And I think that you're absolutely right. The part of it is just comfort of being at Pemberley and of being at home and being in his introvert space where he knows everyone's name and, you know, he's further from trauma and from uncomfortable people staring at him and any number of things. But also she gave him this feedback that he was snobbish. And here he is not being a snob with her aunt and uncle and in fact being incredibly hospitable. He's almost a totally different person to her. And, you know, we always want to talk about love in, in these conversations. And the romance is like, he is going to really listen to her feedback and do whatever he can to meet her halfway. It's also so interesting that, you know, he's been talking to his beloved little sister about her. I know. That whatever we have missed ever since he handed over that letter, that, you know, instead of feeling like that was an end to something, it's something that he interpreted as a vulnerable beginning in some ways that, you know, you can just feel him going back to Georgiana and relaying the story and confessing and Georgiana saying, you know what, maybe you didn't screw everything up. Maybe she's actually going to read this and think about you differently. And you know what? Maybe she was right to say that stuff to you. This is your <laughs> shit you got to work on. And you, she sounds pretty fantastic. I would love to meet her. Can I meet her? And and then here, here's the opportunity. I think that there's all, all this great material where we get to sort of fill in what's been happening with Darcy while we've been separated from him. And that kind of brings us to a place that allows him to be chivalrous and accessible and lovely, even as we're told it feels like every subject is embargoed and they can't even talk to each other. They can just be awkward teenagers who end up like in the food court together, kind of freaking out, but wanting to be near each other. I know. She's like, I can't compliment him in the house because he'll think I'm asking for a proposal again. And I can't ask about how Bingley is because I accused him of messing with that. Like there's no safe topic between the two of them. And then there's this great moment where she's like, travel. I've been traveling. I can talk <laughs> to him about that. I went to Bakewell. Have you ever been? And like, that's all she can figure out to talk to him about. And yet there are these moments of authenticity that break through where she's like, I didn't know you'd be here. And he's like, don't worry about it. I know. Right. Like 
they are sort of like whispering at each other. And I love the metaphor of, you know, when she was at Netherfield, he had Caroline on one side of him and Mrs. Hurst on the other side of him. And so there wasn't space for her by his side when they were walking on a lane. And here they are walking side by side, just the two of them on a narrow lane. And it's happening. And I love that it's in part opportunity. I'm a big believer in this, right? Like, I, I mean, a lot of people are, right? Like timing and circumstance when you meet someone, it's, it makes all the difference. And he sort of was moved by her, even though it was the wrong time and place. But here they are in the right time and place. And that momentum of that walk, right? They're just so lost in each other and their own natural speed and energy together that, you know, they like book quarter of a mile ahead of the gardeners. And it's like they barely even notice. There's something about that physical motion, again, in the natural world outside of the drawing room where all you can do is take a turn around this enclosed space. When they are outside and together, there's this freedom. And I think there's something really lovely in that, that they are moving as one in a totally non-sexual way. There's nothing hot about it here. It's way too awkward to be hot, but it still feels like, oh, there's something that's being shared that has its own pace. And I really like it. I know. I'm trying to think if I find it hot at all. I guess not. I find it endlessly endearing. They're just trying so hard and I love them for it. And as we're analyzing this as a romance novel, I don't believe that people should change for one another, right? Like you have to love someone as they are. But I do think that there's something great about he's not changing who he is. He is being told he needs to present more authentically and actually work on his presentation. Like if you're a good person, then people aren't going to always give you the benefit of the doubt. You have to actually prove that you're a good person and that he's just so going out of his way for her is so endearing to me. There's also something about pride as a guard, as a protection and prejudice as a guard and a protection. And these are the things that now they've let down with each other. There's a certain mm -hmm. vulnerability and presence when they're showing up for each other without their pride and prejudice, which is what allows the intimacy to happen. The armor's off in a way. And I don't even know if I see that as changing for someone as much as sort of taking the risk to expose oneself in a different way, to be weird, to be awkward, to kind of make space to not have all the answers or mm -hmm. perform a certain version of oneself. And so that's what makes me like them here, finally. Mm -hmm. They're also not teasing each other, which is so much of how they interact with one another, which I think that we see the teasing as flirtatious, but then this new not teasing is vulnerable, which is like its own phase of getting to know someone, right? Where you're no longer hiding behind the banter, but you're just like, okay, I guess we're going to sit here in silence because neither of us can think of something appropriate to say. And yet to your point, I don't want to walk away from you, right? Like I still want to stay near you, even if it's awkward. Oh, I know. I love it. I love it. This is the moment in which you're hearing me say, I love it. And it's happening in the seat of the aristocracy. I am so conditioned to philosophically object to everything that's happening here. And yet, you know, it's working on me. Yeah. I mean, this is like the central question of us looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, right? Of like, is this pushing on buttons that are naturally installed or is this pushing on buttons that it installed? And so are we like, well, congratulations, <laughs> you're doing it, but it's your fault that I want this. And I see it more and more as an expression of frustration of the world that Austin inherited. And while my frustration might come out as like a scream, hers comes out as a laugh. And she's laughing at this world while simultaneously giving us wish fulfillment. And it's dangerous, right? It, it's definitely dangerous to give this kind of wish fulfillment because then it creates, it reifies that wish in us. But I think at least reading it within the context of its time, why wouldn't we allow Jane Austen to sit in a room and imagine this kind of fairy tale happening to her while she's sitting there, most likely in a tremendous amount of pain because she died in her early 40s and poor and... 
any number of other things. Like, why wouldn't she be just allowed to imagine that some man could float in and solve all of her problems? Yes. And yet I want her to take all the furniture out of Pemberley, put it in the yard and light a bonfire. (laughs) That's what I want her to do. Yeah. And like start, you know, a lesbian commune out front. Yeah. I would like all the servants to move into the house and I would like them all to share child care and domestic duties. You want to start a kibbutz. You know, like, why can't Mrs. Reynolds sit and write a book? Yeah. I, I would like the the Pemberley kibbutz. So Lauren, Lizzie, and Georgiana are going to meet. Darcy is going to continue to prove himself to just be the swellest guy in the world. This is the hat trying on montage part. And so much likability. Yeah, so likable. Everyone's so likable. I'll find something to be cranky about. Don't worry. I will be cranky. Thank God. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't recognize you. This landscape, it's meaning. We wanted to walk the grounds a little bit with our dear friend, Derek Borowski. You might remember him from last season. He's an architect who's been focusing lately on urban environmental design for restorative justice. But he's also a scholar who loves a good historical rabbit hole. So let's get him on the phone. Hi, Derek. Hey, Lauren. How's it going? Good. So I have to say, while I was reading this chapter, there's a little line. It's really just a clause on the first page that just conjured you to me, which is this. Natural beauty, so little counteracted by awkward taste. Mm. (laughs) And I was wondering if, you know, reflecting on this era of architecture and landscape architecture in particular, does that seem unusual to you that people just let the wonder of the natural world just do its own thing, let it alone? Uh, No, actually. So (laughs) you touched on the exact sentence that like really kind of got my head spinning. What I think Austin is doing here is kind of situating herself in the ongoing discourse on aesthetics and aesthetic critique. And it's very, very timely uh, that she would be writing in this moment that this would be kind of the side she would take, I guess, in the, in the critique. And this whole rooting of beauty in nature and the picturesque, It starts with Burke basically identifying in it that nature has this, when you look at nature, the beauty comes from almost feeling your insignificance. And he distinguishes that from the kind of classic beauty of classicism and rationalism, things like that, which is all about proportion and using the rules and things like that. So then Kant comes around a number of years later and basically is like, yeah, 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 you just told us what we all know, but I'm going to explain how it works. And he goes into, and this is like fascinating, but he goes into this whole crazy theory, which I'm not going to get into, but he basically explains like the workings in, or his idea about how the workings in the mind, like trigger these feelings of beauty, like what that means. And his, the way he kind of slices it, which I, which I love is that he basically says that when you recognize something as being beautiful, it says something about you, that you are a person who knows fashion or beauty or taste or whatever, but he actually ties it to morality. And so in tied up in this whole conversation about the picturesque, the romantic and things like that, this really shift towards seeing beauty in nature that is very much bound up in ideas about morality. And so back to Mr. Darcy, what I think she's setting up here and tying him into the picturesque and the way that he curates his grounds being more in this kind of new emerging kind of movement of the picturesque and the romantic and things like that is actually tying back to saying something about his morality, like he is a good person. So so what would this landscape tell you about Darcy? I mean, first of all, it should be clear to everyone, I think Pemberley, the estate, is really a stand-in for him. So as she is observing the estate and she's talking about it or thinking about it, it's really all reflecting on him as a character. And on one level... You can just read just the very literal symbolism of like 
a stone house, well, standing well on rising ground. It's across a valley. It's like this loner and he's like unreachable. He's over there. There's all of that stuff. And then when you get to the interiors, she talks about how it's like, it's lofty, handsome, expensive, but neither gaudy or uselessly fine. And there she's distinguishing between sort of the other places we've been, which are more in the line of like, you know, we get this image of like Versailles or something, these kind of very ostentatious places. And so it's very interesting that from the exterior, this place is positioned as being kind of this, you know, this thing off across a valley that you have to go on this trek to get to. And on the interiors, it's really revealed as being this kind of intimate place of like almost ease and grace. It seems to be speaking to sort of what you're about to learn from the housekeeper about his interior life, um, which is much different than we've seen his exterior life, right? But on a deeper level, the scene that she's painting, which is this house tour, which I didn't really realize was much of a thing, but I did a little digging on it, and um, it actually came as as a result. It was like a thing that English kind of people of means would do during this time and is really made popular by this guy, uh, Gilpin, who basically he was a travel writer. And what was interesting about what he was doing was he basically positioned the English countryside as being of the same value as a trip to, say, Rome or Venice or Florence, which traditionally had been what you do on your soaking in of history and architecture and arts, right? So Gilpin basically was situating the English countryside as having the same kind of value as that kind of trip. So right there now you have this sort of opposition of the kind of the old Roman and Greek and history, this of like old Europe. And now you have this idea that like the nature and country houses and all this was kind of, was a worthy pursuit of, for people of means and noble people and, you know, middle-class people who could travel. So you mentioned Burke. Tell us a little bit more about who that is and why he matters. So Burke was writing in the mid-18th century, probably like 30 years before Gilpin, and Gilpin was probably very much aware of Burke, um, very influenced by Burke. Burke was writing about the difference between what he called beauty and the sublime. So we're coming out of an era when beauty was very much bound in with the classical classicist ideas of beauty, which are proportion, form, you know, everything that came from the Greeks and the Romans, basically. They knew beauty and we learned it all from them. Whereas nature definitely inspired in us this sense of awe, which we called beauty, but he was trying to seek the difference between kind of what that was and what we traditionally thought of beauty. And he called that this awe, he called it the sublime, which was an acknowledgement that there is a kind of horror to nature. Like when you look out into an ocean, uh, Lauren, I've probably shared this feeling <laughs> to you because I don't really feel it, but you look out into the ocean and you just think, wow, I could definitely die in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you look at a mountain and you're like, wow, I am nothing compared to that mountain. And so... He basically says that the beauty that we see, feel from nature is first the recognition of this like horrible, deadly force that could kill us in an instant. And then the pleasure that follows, which is, but we're still alive. <laughs> so he's writing about um, those two forces and just that kind of the fact that nature was turned into this kind of idea of um, aesthetic discourse then I think contributed to a lot of other people thinking about it, including Gilpin and Kant. I love that notion of the horror of nature and, and, you know, what it means looking at an ocean or a mountain, because I think there's also some element of that in regards to love in this book. Like Darcy and Lizzie are both so terrified, I think, of the enormity <laughs> and the possible self-obliteration of what, like, full love might feel like. And then, you know, as they start hiking, <laughs> as they start swimming, maybe, maybe it's not quite the terror that they suspected. Does it seem to you that these thoughts about how to live within nature feel particularly forward thinking or modern for that age? It almost feels transcendental to me. So 
the reason why I love this bit and this whole kind of thread is that if you look at the long kind of arc of aesthetics and architecture and whatever, like these things come and go constantly. And so, yes, it absolutely feels modern for that moment, right? But then in 1930, it suddenly feels quaint and old fashioned, right? And then in the 1960s and 70s, it feels modern again. And then in the 80s, not. And right now, I think, yes, which is, I think, why we're so interested in these stories right now and Downton Abbey and all of this stuff, because we are in this moment. Ever since Y2K happened, we were all excited about technology. Y2K happened. And then three years later, we see, you know, stuffed antlers on restaurants. And, you know, it's like it's everything old is new again. Um, So absolutely, it feels modern at this moment and then. It's all part of this kind of ebb and flow. Well, Derek, my dear, it has been sublime. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It is how we find new listeners and we want new listeners. We love you, but we also want more of you. We're a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks as always to our Jane Bennett level patrons. Viscount Elise Kennegrottenham of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks to Jenny Davidson, Roxanne Everly, and Derek Borowski for talking to us, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.